0: Jesus will reject those who self-righteously reject him, but will graciously justify or make right those who respond in true faith to his call. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Folks, I want to ask us a fundamental question here today. I think it's the most important question we can ask of all. And that is, how can I be right with God? How can people be right with God? God is righteous, holy, just. Human beings are sinful, fallen. Uh, Because of our sin, we are under the judgment, the righteous judgment of God. But is there a way, though, that we can be made right with God? Be restored to a right relationship with him. How can that be? Well, the scriptures tell us that there is only one way, and that one way is wondrous, beautiful, exhilarating, and glorious. But we sinful human beings resist it nevertheless. That one way to be right with God is to receive that rightness, that righteousness, that perfect moral quality, is to receive that by faith as a gift from God. But we humans want to try to do it some other way, don't we? We try to make rightness with God, righteousness, into something that we can do ourselves. And the end result oftentimes then is self righteous religion, self-righteous religion, versus a gift-righteous relationship. Self-righteous religion versus a gift-righteous relationship. You know, we make our efforts to do enough to be right before God we make it all the focus of so that I need to do something to make me right with God we think well I'm a good person I'm good enough then right you know you ask the average person on the street you know what do you think you think you're going to heaven most people would say yes why because they are what a good person they would say and you know what? I am thankful that there are many good people in our world. I don't dispute that there are good people in the world if we're evaluating that goodness on the basis of, a, of the worst of human beings that exist, right? Aren't you thankful that most human beings are not the worst they could possibly be, right? So I am thankful for that. But the standard isn't the worst how you fare compared to the worst human being. What's God's standard? Absolute perfection. Which, as we've said before, you want God to require absolute perfection. Why? Because just imagine, would you want, would this be heaven if God allowed sin or imperfection into it? What kind of heaven would that be like this? Would you want to live forever in a world like this? No, I certainly wouldn't either. So God requires that absolute perfection. And yeah, compared to the worst human beings that have ever lived, yeah, most people are good people, I suppose. But that's not the standard. The standard is absolute perfection. Because of that, on that basis, is anybody good? Is anybody righteous? No, we're not. So God requires perfection. And that is why, in part, why we must receive that righteousness, that moral perfection, as a gift from God. It's a gift that is received by grace through faith, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast, but as a gift received by faith. And yet we want to make it about us, don't we? But it's not about us. It's about what God has done for us in Christ. So we're continuing then today, Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, putting them all together into one flowing chronological account of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are following the order of events as suggested in this book, One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. Moving on today in that, we are going to speak of self-righteous rejection and gracious justification. You're gonna get some fancy theological words here uh, for us today, we're gonna look at that. But self-righteous rejection and gracious justification. Self-righteous rejection, what people do, gracious justification, what God has done for us in spite of what we do, in spite of our sin then. So we're doing a harmony from Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. And what is the big idea? What is the main thought that I want us to take away from the message today? And that is this, that Jesus will reject those who self-righteously reject him, but will graciously justify or make right those who respond in true faith to his call. He will reject those who self-righteously reject him, but he will graciously justify or make right with himself those who respond in true faith to his call. A little context for our text here. Jesus had journeyed to Jerusalem now for the final time in his earthly ministry. He knows that he will soon go to the cross where he will give his life. He has presented himself to the nation, but many misunderstood him and the religious ruling authorities rejected him. Jesus wept over the city because he knew the unbelieving hearts of the people, and he knew the judgment that lay ahead for the city and for the nation because of their rejection of him. Earlier in the Passion Week, we saw how he had cursed a fig tree because it was not bearing any fruit when it should have been, and Jesus used that as an object lesson that for the judgment that awaited the nation because of their fruitlessness, for their unbelief and rejection. But even then, as uh, many rejected him, there were some then who did receive him, who did believe him, and he spoke then of the great things that they can do through faith then for those who believe in him. But even as some then did believe in Jesus, many, including the religious leaders of the nation, rejected him, and Jesus calls them out for their self-righteousness, for their self-righteous hypocrisy. And unsurprisingly, they didn't like that, and they sought to kill that. Who here likes it when you have somebody point out your, your sin, where you're wrong, where you're just flat. People don't like that, right? And these self-righteous religious leaders, they didn't like that either, and they sought to kill him then. So let's look then at our first text here in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. It says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to him. Now, it happened on one of those days that they came again to Jerusalem, and he came into the temple. He taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And they said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven? Or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say, From heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say, From men, we fear the multitude. For all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said likewise, And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Here we see hypocritical rejection. Hypocritical rejection on the part of the religious leaders and rulers of the nation. Jesus returned to the temple courts that he had just recently cleansed and claimed for his father, and in this court here, he confronted various religious groups in the nation. And the debate began as the chief priests and the elders asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? What do they mean by these things? Well, they probably meant this triumphal entry into the city, his reception of praise from the people, his Clearing cleansing of the temple his healing of the blind and the lame and his teaching Jesus who do you think you are? Coming in here like that doing all these things by what authority you know, you didn't go to any of our you don't have an official uh, Seminary degree here. You didn't go to our approved places. You're not one of our you're not one of our students. No, we don't know Who do you think you are doing this? by what authority? Do you do these things? See, the leaders understood that Jesus was claiming authority as the Messiah. And they want to know, well, where did you get this authority? Who do you think you are to claim to be this Messiah, to be doing these things? He certainly didn't receive it from them. And after all, they're the experts, right? Well, in response to the the religious leader's question, Jesus had a little question of his own, promising that if they answered his question first, then he would answer theirs. And so Jesus said, you ever heard that expression, turnabout is fair play? See, Jesus, all through his earthly ministry, and in fact, we're gonna see it coming up uh, soon here again in, in upcoming weeks here, these religious rulers, leaders, they were constantly trying to trap Jesus in his words right? They're trying to set up, a, a, give him a question, like, okay, however he answers this, he's going to have a problem here, right? So they're trying to constantly trap him in his words, put him in a no-win situation. And so now we see Jesus, Jesus, of course, knows this. He knows what they're up to. And so he does a little turnabout here, and he says, uh, I'll tell you what, you know, I'll answer your question, but first take a little question, and what does he do? He turns it about on them and says, I'm gonna ask you a question, and he puts them in a situation I'm like, oh boy, no matter what we say. See, now, when they would try to trap Jesus, he always, did, did they ever successfully trap him? No, he didn't. He always, there was a way in his in his divine wisdom that he he addressed it, without getting trapped. Now here then, they're not smart enough or wise enough to do that. And so they just simply say, come up with it, well, well, we don't know. They knew what they believed or what they thought, but they were afraid to say it. So he says, uh, what is this this question? And so Jesus says, uh, John's baptism, you know, John the Baptist where at the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry, remember how John the Baptist was out in the wilderness calling people, saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? He was preparing the way for Messiah, for Jesus. And so, and and, and John pointed to who is the Messiah? To Jesus, right? So now Jesus says, John the Baptist, what do you think about him, you know? Uh, was, was, he a, was he a real deal prophet or not? Did, 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 his, did, his, did, did he come from, was this ministry he had from heaven or from men? In other words, was, was he a true prophet of God? Or was he just a false prophet? What do you think? Where was his baptism from? From heaven of divine origin? Was his message from God? Or was he a false prophet who message, whose message was from man? It's a pretty simple, straightforward question, isn't it? But they realized they had a problem. Because they said, well, from heaven, he was a true prophet. Then Jesus, they reasoned correctly among themselves, well, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Because what was one of the things John was, John was telling, what? To repent, to prepare for the coming of the kingdom, and prepare for Messiah, who is who? Jesus. And not only are they not, they hadn't repented, they were not preparing, and not only were they not receiving Jesus as Messiah, they were plotting to do what? Kill. To kill him. So, oh yeah, John, yeah, he's, oh yes, he was a true prophet from heaven. Really? So now you're going to kill the Messiah, John was pointing to? Oh, that's, well, we can't do that. So, so we can't say it's from heaven, from God. So, well, we'll say, well, then from man, he was a false prophet. Well, that would get him in trouble. Why? Get him in trouble with the crowd because they knew the people received John as a prophet and they would say to call John the Baptist a false prophet well the people would want to stone them then so they realized they had a problem just they were always trying to trick Jesus well now he had put them in a spot and they didn't have a way out of it other than to simply say then what we don't know well I think they they knew what they thought but they didn't dare say it right So Jesus says, okay, you don't know? Well, then I don't have to tell you either. I'm not going to answer your question then either. But then he goes on to tell the first of several parables. The parable of the two sons. To go to work in the vineyard. A man owns a vineyard. And by the way, a vineyard was one of the pictures in the Old Testament scriptures for the nation, for God's people. It was God's vineyard. Because a vineyard is supposed to be producing Grapes, fruit, right? Well, the vineyard was, uh, was God's people. that were, They were supposed to be producing a harvest of fruits as well. Uh, of what? Of godly character and righteousness, right? So this father, he sends a, a, he's going to send his sons to go work in the vineyard. And the first son says, nope, not going to do it. But he has a change of mind. He repents of that and he goes and works in the vineyard. Well, the second son, oh, yes, father, yep, I will go, I'll go, but he never does. Well, which one of them did the will of his father? The first one, right? The one who said, I won't, but then repented and did. Whereas the first one, what? He said he wouldn't, but he had a repent, he repented, he had a change of mind. The second one was all what? Talk. Yes, I will, I will. But his actions didn't line up with his talk. In other words, what? Hypocrisy. Now, is Jesus talking about a literal vineyard and literal sons going and working in it? No, he's speaking what? About the nation and about people who maybe at first did not respond to, to God, but they repented and were faithful obedient these harlots and tax collectors the the lowest of the low the religious rulers thought well they were repenting and entering the kingdom they were that first son like that first son whereas the religious rulers what they were the self-righteous hypocrites who paid lip service to god but there was no obedience in their lives true obedience. So many tax collectors and prostitutes received the message of John, and they did the will of the Father. They repented and they believed, and therefore they would be allowed entrance into the kingdom of God. But the religious leaders who did not repent and believe, they would be denied entrance, and they stood condemned. No doubt they were stunned by Jesus' words that despised immoral people, as they thought, were entering the kingdom, and they, the religious leaders, were not. Do you see how offensive Jesus was to them? Go on and told. Then he began to tell the people this parable. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. Dug a wine press in it, a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him. And sent him away, empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, cast him out, and sent him away, shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed Thus he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them, beating some and killing some. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last of all. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance, which will be ours. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Indeed, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. But others, when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, Have you never read in the scriptures this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking this parable against them. And they sought to lay hands on him that very hour. But they feared the people because they took him for a prophet, And so they left him and went away. So we saw a self-righteous, hypocritical rejection. And now we see violent, violent rejection. In this other parable, Jesus continues to demonstrate the response of the nation to his ministry. Told of a landowner who went to great expense to make a vineyard productive. And then he rented out that vineyard to farmers who would care for it. But when harvest time came, the landowner sent his servants to collect what was rightfully his, some measure of the fruit. But the tenant farmers mistreated the servants, beating one, killing another, stoning a third. Other servants were sent, all with the same results. And finally, the landowner sends his very own son, thinking, surely they will respect him. But they didn't even respect the son. They killed the son. Now, was Jesus talking about a landowner and a vineyard and sending servants? No, what's he talking about? the nation the vineyard is the nation the vine dressers are the what they're the religious rulers and the leaders of the nation who are these servants who's who's the owner god god sends his servants his prophets and how were how were the prophets treated some of them what were rejected they were mistreated some of them were even killed so then god sends then his beloved son, Jesus, right? Surely they'll listen to him, right? No, God knew they would not, right? But they don't listen even to the son. They're plotting to kill the son. And they realized he was talking about them. And now they're even more angry with him. Jesus says, this kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to whom? To others what? who would have a right attitude and who would be faithful in it. Who are these others? Gentiles, other, you know, well, Jews who would believe too, right? But also, though, other nations. They would be given the kingdom. but you, you religious rulers, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. And some of them certainly not. And Jesus said, what, have you read the scriptures? This was prophesied. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and people fall and trip over him. They tripped over him that day. People continue to trip over Jesus today, don't they? And he says, what, this chief cornerstone, that what will he do? People will trip over him, but then also he will crush those who reject him. So they realized they're being spoken of, but they were afraid at that time to act. So Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Hypocritical rejection, violent rejection and now divine rejection, divine judgment, God's judgment. So here we have the figure of a wedding banquet. where again, the coming of the kingdom here. And people are being invited to come and rejoice at this great banquet. But instead of doing so, what? They made light of it and they rejected the king's servants and they did not take up that offer. In fact, they killed the servants. And so the king sent his army and destroyed them and burned their city. Now, Jesus had in mind the effects of, of the rejection, of the nation's rejection of him. God had made plans for his son's kingdom, his millennial reign. The invitation had been extended. But the preaching of John the Baptist, of Jesus, and the disciples had largely been ignored. And the nation would even kill those extending the offer. And so judgment would come upon them, and finally it did, actually, in A.D. 70, about 40 years later, when the Roman army would kill many of those living in Jerusalem and destroy the temple, and the nation would cease to exist for how long? Nearly 2,000 years. But the parable doesn't end there. It said, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they had found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment so he said to him friend how did you come in and how did you come in here without a wedding garment and he was speechless and then the king said to the servants bind him hand and foot take him away and cast him into outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen and here we see gracious justification And probably some of you say, what, how do you get that out of that? What? What, where Where did you see grace in that? Where did you see justification being made right with God? Who's a little confused at this point? Where did you get that, right? Hang on. There's more, right? So this wedding banquet was prepared since those who were invited first rejected the invitation the opportunity was given then to a broader group so what's that referring to what the the nation many of them had rejected their messiah was at the end then of messiah no the offer then went to whom out into all the world all the nations that's us that's the gentiles right that in fact the wedding hall was filled with guests there would be many who would come. Some from the nation came, but most of it, it was filled with those from outside. Okay, where's this gracious justification you're talking about? I saw something about, what do you mean, there's a, there's a guest that shows up and he didn't have a wedding garment and then he gets cast into the outer darkness. How does that about grace and justification? Well, it's this. When people came to this, this king would supply their clothing, a wedding garment. Remember, he invited them all to come, but then the king would supply the nice clothes. How many of you have been to a, I'm sure you've been to a nice, a wedding, a wedding reception, right? Generally, people tend to put on their, their best clothes for that, right? Get all dressed up for that. And you probably pulled something out of your closet. You didn't do that. But wouldn't it be nice if every time you got invited to a wedding, the, the, uh, the, the couple actually paid for your wardrobe to come, you know, to that? Wouldn't that be nice? Well, it doesn't work that way in our day. But in their day, that's what would happen. The king would supply their garments for them. And here's this person then who shows up here, but he didn't bother to put on the garment that the king supplied for him. He was just wearing Whatever. Do you see where we're going now, a little bit now, with gracious justification here and that? See, so what does the garment represent? That garment represents righteousness, being clothed with righteousness. And because this is, not just here, but in, often in Scripture, being clothed with by God represented being righteous. Putting on righteous clean clothes instead of dirty old filthy rags, right? So the king had supplied righteousness, but this person rejected it, and because of that he was cast out into the outer darkness, eternal condemnation. So this one, he was not ready for the for the to to be he was not properly attired for the wedding banquet, because he had rejected the king's garment. Wait a minute, where, where, where's that come from? Well, there are many places in Scripture, but let me give you one example. I love this path. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. All right? But it's such a beautiful picture of being clothed with righteousness by God's grace. And that's the story in Zechariah chapter 3, where there is Joshua. Not Joshua from the days of the of uh, the exodus and the conquering the promised land. This is Joshua. This is many, many years later, who was a high priest in the nation. And Zechariah then speaks of something that, which is such a beautiful picture of how God takes the filthy garments of our sin and takes those all off and puts on the beautiful, clean clothing of righteousness imputed or given to us as a gift righteousness look at what he says then Zechariah 3 verse 1 then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord who is the angel of the Lord oftentimes in the Old Testament the son of God Jesus right showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and satan standing at his right hand to accuse him satan is accusing the high priest and the lord the lord god the father said to satan the lord rebuke you o satan the lord has chosen who has chosen jerusalem rebuke you is not this a brand plucked from the fire is not this joshua Someone I have plucked and chosen for myself. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. How many of us, apart from Christ, are clothed with filthy garments? Every single one of us, including the high priest, right? And there's Satan accusing him. You know, I always like to say, you know what, Satan, when Satan accuses me, he doesn't have to make up lies. I give him plenty of material, right? <laughs> who, here, who gives Satan plenty of material? He doesn't have to make up lies to accuse me. He can just tell the truth, right? So here's Satan probably telling the truth about Joshua. God knows that. God sees those. He says, Joshua is standing there clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin, away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So he takes away Joshua's sin, and he gives him purity, righteousness, by his grace. As a gift. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Isn't that a wonderful passage? See, and this is what God has done for all believers. So who was this guest who wasn't wearing the wedding garments and gets thrown out? An unbeliever who hadn't received that, rejected that. He thought, oh, I'm good. Oh, I'm fine. I'm a good person. No, you're not. Now do you see where gracious justification comes from in that passage? This is what God has done for all believers in Christ. He has justified them. Justification. Justification means to declare someone is righteous. The only way you and I can ever be perfectly righteous or holy is if God does it for us (laughs) and declares it, right? And that's what God has done. That's why we call this, what, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. We're declared right and holy because Jesus was right and holy, And we stand united with him then. So justification then is an act of God whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in the righteous Christ. One theologian says this, The root idea in justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the person who believes in Christ Sinful though he or she may be is righteous, is viewed as being righteous, because in Christ that person has come into a righteous relationship with God. Justification then comes apart from the law. We can't earn it. We can't, we can't do it through rule-keeping or our own good works. It's made possible then by the sacrificial death of Christ It's based solely on his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Justification, then, is a free and gracious gift of God bestowed on those who receive it by faith. And justification demonstrates, then, ultimately, the righteousness of God. One theologian summarizes the blessings of justification as follows. The remission of the penalty of sin, which was death the restoration to God's favor, which had been lost due to our sin. It's the imputation or the gift of righteousness given to us. We are declared to be righteous legally because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So justification is a gift of God. It's received, it's by God's grace. God's grace, we talked about that in our class uh, earlier this morning. It's what? It's an attitude of favor and blessing which is poured out on undeserving sinners. It is entirely a gift of God's grace. We contribute no merit or no work to our salvation. It's all Jesus' work, Jesus' merit. And so all the work that was necessary to obtain our salvation was done by Jesus through his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross as the punishment for our sins, and his victorious resurrection from the grave. Incredible good news, isn't it? And yet so many people reject that and want to make it about themselves and their own self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. So justification by grace, and it's through faith. All of this is given to us through faith, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what? What do you want me to do? Well, it would remind us that Jesus will reject those who self-righteously reject him, but he will graciously justify or declare right those who respond in true faith to his call. That call to believe goes out to everyone, to all the world. Do you hear God's call in life? Have you heard that? would remind us there's self-righteous religion or there's gift-righteous relationship. Self-righteous religion or gift-righteous relationship. Have you responded in faith to God's call? Our salvation, our justification, our being made right with God is by God's grace through faith a gift. Received through repentance, changing our mind, from sin and turning away from self and turning toward God and his provision for us. So we're saved by grace through faith. And then after that, our our growth, our sanctification, our growth in righteousness, it's all our own effort, our work, right? No. Did you know that even sanctification, our growth in righteousness, is also by the grace of God? and God's work in our hearts and our lives. Our growth in Christ-like character comes not through our human efforts to better ourselves. It comes about by God's Spirit working in us to produce the character of Christ in us. Don't believe me? Well, listen to these words right here in Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? By faith, right? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, what? We're saved by faith, by grace, through faith, We receive the Spirit by grace through faith. Now, having begun that way, okay, now we're perfected then by the flesh, by our own human efforts to try harder, right? No, that's also God's work, God's gracious work. Now, are we responsible? Absolutely. Must we be obedient to the Spirit? Absolutely. But it's ultimately the Spirit who produces the fruit of righteousness in our lives. So I'd ask, are you trying to sanctify yourself? Don't. <laughs> I'm not saying be disobedient to God, to God's word and, God's, to the, to the, and, and and disobey what God says. I'm not saying that. But I am saying stop trying to reform yourself. Stop trying to be a better person than you are. Instead what? Submit, submit to the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you to produce righteousness righteous character let's pray father thank you for this wonderful good news that we have in jesus lord i pray maybe there's there's someone here now who's hearing your call to to turn to turn away from self-righteousness from efforts to be a good person and instead realizes their need before you because lord compared to your perfection none of us are good we all have fallen short. We all need the Savior, the Lord Jesus. So Lord, we turn away from self-reliance. We turn away from that and we turn toward our Savior, Jesus. And we joyfully receive his gift of righteousness, of right standing before you. Has that a gift? Not a result of our works. We do not boast but we give you all the glory and the credit, Lord. And Lord, there's some of us here or maybe who are struggling. We're trying to reform ourselves or to be better than we are. We, we do believe we have received justification as a gift, but now we think it's our job to just try harder. So I pray, Father, that you would help us to see, no, even that is a mighty work of your spirit in us. Help us, Lord, empower us to yield to you, to obey you. And may there be a great harvest of Christ-like character in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.